From WXXI News, this is Unleash the Pet Show on Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. In our final broadcast of Unleashed for 2016, we're putting a special focus on safety tips for pets during the holiday season. From toxic foods and plants to what to do if your pet tries to snack on the Christmas tree and decorations, we want to help you avoid a trip to the emergency vet. And if you do have an emergency, we'll help you know what to expect. We'll take you inside the veterinary specialist and emergency services hospital. Plus, you've probably seen commercials where a dog or a cat is wearing a big red bow as a surprise holiday gift. But is that a good idea to give pets as presents? It's it's a hot topic. Not you know I, I remember going all the way back to uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I think where there was the cat was in a box. The box was meowing. Uh, but there was a surprising answer to this. I, I have to say, and you're going to hear later this hour. We're going to talk to staff at Lollipop Farm about the latest research on that subject. But first, we want to hear from you. Dr. Jackie Walker from Churchville Veterinary Hospital is in studio with us today. You can ask her a question about your pet's health or behavior by calling us. And I'm, I'm going to stress something here. Here's the, what happens every month. We get some calls early, and then we get a crush of calls late. And then some people can't get through, and they say, I couldn't get through. And I say, call us early. Don't wait. This is a good chance to get through now. So you can call 844-295-TALK, toll free, 844-295-8255. If you're in Rochester, you can call 263-WXXI, 263-9994, or you can tweet your question to the hashtag Unleashed. You can find me on Twitter at Evan Dawson. Dr. Jackie Walker in studio. Nice to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You have a, you have a very interesting practice in that a lot of the veterinarians we talk to, uh, I would probably guess the majority of veterinarians in the field, primarily work with cats and dogs, pretty common. Um, you have a little bit broader range on what you do from pocket pets to wild birds and more. So can we talk a little bit about what you do first? I find it fascinating. Sure. So primarily, what's a, what's an average day or week like for you? I'll start there. So normally I do see mostly dogs and cats, mm-hmm. but I am also interested in pocket pets. Uh, and the veterinarian that I actually work for, he has a relationship with a wildlife rehabilitator. And so we get to see a lot of wildlife, especially mostly birds. And, um, you know, we usually see anywhere from none to five or six in a week. Okay. So. And so when it comes to pocket pets, by the way, what's the what's the definition? Really any small mammal, and it can even be, if you can include reptiles as well. Okay. Uh, are we talking, um, like, is a, fer- a ferret not a pocket pet, or it is? Oh, yeah, it is. a ferret okay. is a pocket pet, yes. All right, so ferret's a pocket pet, people, uh, guinea pigs, things mm-hmm. like that? Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, so you've got a wide range that you treat there. Uh, are there particular challenges to dealing with pocket pets versus dogs and cats? They usually are much more anxious in the hospital than dogs and cats are, especially when there are other dogs and cats and their smell in the hospital. So that's usually something that we have to contend with. And a lot of times some of, you know, other veterinary staff are not very comfortable, like, restraining them. Mm. And, um, you know, sometimes some of their treatments are a lot different, more different than dogs and cats as well. So Okay. And when it comes to to wild birds, Mm Is it primarily rehabbing you're doing, like wing injuries, or what kind of work are you doing? Mostly initial diagnostics. So the rehabber will get a call from someone that has found an injured animal, and he will bring it to us if he doesn't already know what's wrong with it. So just yesterday, um, you know, a wild a wild bird was brought in to us, and he had a dislocated knee. And so, you know, he knew something was wrong with the bird but but didn't know, and so brought it to us for us to figure it out. Okay. Uh, that has to be to me just very interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. working and and is there a pretty good success rate in helping wild birds heal? Uh, depending on the issue, mm-hmm. 
uh, sometimes, but no, in general, a lot of wildlife that comes in injured, there are certain certain issues that they have that you can't be able to release them again. So I, that's what I thought, right? Because yeah. I mean, putting them back in the wild. Mm-hmm. They're really vulnerable, isn't it? Isn't that the case? Yeah. So anytime that they have certain breaks to their bones, mm. you know, they won't they won't be releasable again. So wow. unfortunately, um, the success rate I would say is is a lot lower than you would think. But sometimes. Yeah, but sometimes, depending on what the issue is, you know, if they just have like trauma running into a car but didn't break anything, yeah. and you know, just need some time to recover, yeah, then they can they can make it. Do we know why birds just fly into windows? What's going on there? No, I think, you know, I'm not real sure. I think that they just get scared just like deer and, and disperse. And, and if they run into something, they do. <laughs> I didn't think you could answer that, but I no. this is my one chance to ask. And before <laughs> I get to your phone calls, I, something else that you do that I think is so valuable to this community is that you make house calls often for people who have disabilities and, and, and often for, for euthanasia at home, which is... Uh, it can be so tough, I know, but so valuable. Tell me a little bit about the house call work that you do. Yeah, I I didn't start that. Actually, my, my boss did, and I think that that is a really great thing that we offer. I have experienced euthanasia in a veterinary practice as a pet owner myself and, and also at home, and, and I think the euthanasias that I have experienced myself at home were much were much nicer, and, you know, it was just your family there, and, you know, the veterinarian there, you know, knows you very well usually, and it just it, it was nicer to be in your own home and to have your other pets around I think is really important too. Well, I want to go to your phone calls, and uh, our Spark system is a little wonky. So, John, <laughs> I, I don't know who's on line one or two, but there's someone there. So uh, I'm going to trust John. John what, grab the microphone, John. Uh, who's on line one? Debbie from okay. Rush. All right. Hi. Debbie and Rush is first up. Go ahead, Debbie. Hi there. I've got a question. I have a seven- or eight-month-old kitten, and... Um, I can't break her of the habit. She keeps, whenever I try to pet her, she wants to sort of chew and bite on me. She thinks that I'm the dog. I do have a big dog that she plays with. But what's your suggestions about how to break her of that habit? That is a very common issue that a lot of people with kittens have. And I think that, you know setting up some ground rules or kind of coming up with a plan of how you're going to do this is a, is a great idea. And so most kittens and even cats can be very mouthy and, you know, um, you know, when that, whenever she goes to bite you or he goes to bite you, um, telling them no, stopping the activity that you're doing so that they don't think that that is okay. And a lot of times just with dogs, how, you know, you kind of hold their mouth closed and you tell them no bite. Uh, you can do the same thing with a kitten too. And, um, water bottles where, you know, you can spray them. A lot of people don't like that, but it is very good to get them to stop doing either, you know, if they're chewing on the Christmas tree or chewing on your hand. Um, so the, I think the water bottle is a good idea as well as, you know, what, if you're playing with them, you know, stop playing with them so that they know that if, if they do this activity, they won't be able to continue to play with you. Okay. So like if I'm petting her and she starts doing it, you would just say no and stop immediately or put her down or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So if you're holding her, put her down, tell her no and walk away. And so that way she knows that if she, if she does this, that immediately ends the activity that you guys were doing. All right, we'll keep at it. <laughs> yeah, it can be tough. Debbie, good luck. Thank you for the phone call. It's 844-295-TALK. That's toll-free, 844-295-8255. John Andrus, I feel like you're Rod Roddy today. Who's on line two, John? <laughs> well, uh, Evan, we have D from the city. All right, D, go ahead. D in Rochester, you're next. Go ahead, D. Hi, 
Hi, yes. Um, first of all, I wanted to say that um, I, I know as being an animal owner, um, many people appreciate you, uh, the animal emergency room. Um, it, it saves lives, and I know our community greatly appreciates it. But my question is, um, why is the cost so extremely expensive? It's extremely expensive to the point people would probably have to euthanize their animal because they couldn't afford to cure their animal. Sure. I was going to say, I think I think that's a good question, and a lot of people ask us that when we're referring for issues uh, from a general practice standpoint as well. And I think the reason why is because those individuals, you know, they work very long hours, hard hours, you know, they have to be open in the middle of the night. And so whereas a, a general practice would be open during the day for set hours, you know, those veterinarians and that staff have to be, you know, up in the middle of the night as well as they have additional, you know, diagnostics or testing uh, that general practices don't offer, which are usually more expensive. So they have other testing, and um, a lot of times, you know, animals require transfusions, and that's usually something that, like, a general practitioner wouldn't offer as well. So just with the different medications and the different testing options that they have, as well as the hours that they are required to be open, which is, you know, usually 24-7, And as well as a lot of animals who go there are really sick and require constant monitoring. And at a general practice, you know, you know, we don't usually have people there overnight, whereas at the emergency clinic they do. They have someone in there watching your pet all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you ever see that changing um, or do you ever see insurance covering it better? I know there's there's individual insurance that I'm talking about. Do you ever see in the future where the price is coming down to where it's just an affordable price where people can save their animals' lives besides euthanizing them? Mm. I I think that's a tough question because I think that usually their pricing, and I think that's hard for a lot of people to understand that our pricing is set at a, a certain rate because that's actually what it costs to to maintain those things for our practice as well. And so mm-hmm. I don't see I don't see anything changing with the pricing because most of the time, you know, that's what it costs for the testing to pay the salaries of the people and to keep the practice open and running. Okay. Thank you very much. D, thanks. I think it's it's a fair question, yeah. and and I think um, if if I'm understanding your answer correctly, when it comes to especially some of these emergency treatments or surgeries, mm-hmm. yes, they're expensive, but you're you're not really pocketing a lot of money off that. I mean, there's a lot of that. Yeah, I think that's sort of what Dee is asking there. Yeah, I do think that that's kind of a misnomer that people think that veterinarians make a lot of money. And I, I think veterinarians, you know, make a good living. But most of the time, veterinarians that work at a specialty practice like the one in Rochester, they are board certified in a certain area. And that requires additional schooling and a dis- an additional um, licensure. So for them, you know, they had to go to school longer and they usually do get paid more money. But that's because they have specialized in a specific area like surgery. And so if your animal needs a certain type of surgery, sometimes general practitioners can't do that. And so you have to refer to a surgeon or to another veterinarian who can do something more specialized like that. And that usually means a higher cost because it's a more difficult surgery or procedure or testing, et cetera. I don't know that a lot of practices I've heard of providing laser therapy. Mm-hmm. Yours does. It does, yes. W- what is it? So uh, laser therapy, it's a it's a laser, and um, it's it's smaller than what you would imagine when you say laser. People think something large, but it's it's on a little cart, and um, it 
it has a laser beam, and basically the therapeutic benefits of it are increasing the temperature of the area that you're treating, and that helps to reduce inflammation quicker. It helps to increase heal or decrease healing time, and it helps to make the animal more comfortable as well. So we actually have we've used it on each other there whenever we have something to, and so I personally like have felt it, and it is amazing, and I think that it does help to decrease any pain, and it helps uh, helps you get back to normal quicker. So I know zilch about this. So <laughs> safe. Yes, totally safe. There's no negative side effects. Um, you know, we we have to wear these uh, goggles as well as the animal because it can cause some damage to your retina if the laser beam goes directly in your eye. But we and people love the pictures that we take of the animals with the with the goggles on. <laughs> 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 Dogs, cats, is that what you're primarily what we're yep, talking yeah. about? Yeah, actually we've used the laser therapy for the birds as well to help rehab birds too. Oh man. <laughs> birds with goggles. Yes. You've yes. done it. You've well, done it. a lot of times we just cover their eyes. Yeah, while I was gonna, doing it. how are you gonna put But the dogs on? and the cats, yes, we have them wear the goggles. That would be a spectacular <laughs> laser for um, so I just want to let you know, as we continue our discussion with Dr. J- Dr. Jackie Walker from Churchville Veterinary Hospital here on Unleashed today, to Dee's question about costs, we're going to explore that a little bit later in the hour uh, coming up in the next 10 minutes or so. You'll hear uh, a feature story that addresses some, some of those issues pertaining to that. So Dee and others, if you've got similar questions, more on that coming up here. I'm going to get back to your phone calls in a minute. Let's get our first break of the hour, and, uh, and we'll continue on Unleash the Pet Show in just a moment. Major funding for Unleashed the Pet Show on Connections comes from Rufus Kendig, the Richard T. Bell Foundation, and from the Lilliputian Foundation, little grants making a big difference. And the financial advisors of the Sartini Group at Morgan Stanley, 585-987-6053. Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC. Welcome back to Unleash the Pet Show on Connections. I'm Evan Dawson alongside Dr. Jackie Walker from Churchville Veterinary Hospital. She's in studio with us answering your questions. Want to grab one more listener phone call? Uh, well, one more. One of many, I think, but uh, one for now. And so, John Andrews, who's on the line? Uh, Rachel from Pittsburgh. All right, Rachel, go ahead. Hi, Evan. Hi there. So, um, I have a Shih Tzu who is now seven at the time, um, over the summer he was six, and showed, um, we, one day we were walking him and he just collapsed, which was very, very unusual. And so we took him to the vet a couple times, um, and over the course of, I would say, two or three days, he was to the point where we were, like, ready to read him his last rites. And so they did blood work at our veterinary, and she came in and very despondent and said, Things don't look good. He has his white blood count is very low. Um, sent us over to a specialist or animal hospital. And after keeping him there for, I think it was three nights, doing ultrasounds, several tests, um, they told us that he had leukemia or lymphoma. Couldn't discern which one, but that's, um, and the, they suggested a course of treatment of chemotherapy um, or just putting him on, we, we were pretty insistent that we were, were not going to go that route and said, what other options do we have? I did a bunch of research online, and so we just gave him, treated him with prednisone. Um, I brought him in for a well visit a few weeks ago, and he was probably at 85% of the dog that he once was, 
and I took him off the prednisone about a week ago, and he's behaving like a puppy again, like incredible. So we said, well, you know, prednisone, as far as I know, is not a cure for cancer. Um, what's going on here? Good question. Well, I was going to say, without, you know, obviously seeing blood work or anything, it's hard for me to tell you exactly what I think is going on. But um, that is an interesting, that's an interesting thing that you bring up. And I actually, the veterinarian that I work with as well, had a similar case happen a few years ago. And he said that he had just had the dog on the prednisone and the dog went into remission. So it is possible with the chemotherapy protocols that dogs go into remission with uh, lymphoma. And so, you know, he asked, he said the same thing, you know, I don't know how this happened, but the dog just went into remission on just the prednisone. So, I mean, it is possible. I think that the chances of that happening are very slim. But I mean, if that's what's going on for you, you know, that's pretty lucky if that's if that's what's really going on. Um, Well, you know, that's every indication. He had a repeat of all the blood work Mm -hmm. and showed no signs of of anything. So, um. I don't know. I mean, I know obviously you can't diagnose the dog without seeing the dog and mm-hmm. seeing the lab work and all that. But I think, you know, one thing that we felt pretty strongly about and, and felt really guilty about, and I kind of you know wanted other people to know, we thought, gosh, how can we take a dog in for chemo? Like, he, this dog has panic attacks just taking him to the vet. Mm-hmm. And now, and we kind of felt, you know, a little bad. That was the only option. And here we're, we're turning down treatment. But, you know, it, it's, it's a dog. And it wasn't even about the money. It was just about, we felt like, you know, it would have been doing him a lot more harm than good. And, um, and actually a couple of the things that I did read online is that there's some case studies being done for treating animals, dogs with just prednisone. So, you know, again, I just, I, I don't know what to, what to make of it or, or else, you know, anything else you could say about it, but they kind of, had the same reaction. Boy, we never expected to see you back yeah. again with this dog, and certainly yeah. not as healthy as he is. Yeah, I think that um, we usually use prednisone when people do decline to go for chemotherapy for their for their animals, and we have found that using just the prednisone prolongs their life and does make them comfortable for much longer than they would be without without any treatment. And I think that the reason that usually specialists um, push for the chemotherapy for lymphoma is because they do have pretty successful remission rates using the specific protocol um, that we have, you know, for the last several years for lymphoma. And I think that, you know, everyone does have a a negative opinion, I think, of chemotherapy in dogs. And I think that everyone has a very personal, you know, opinion or feeling on that. And I think that, you know, whatever, whatever people want to do in terms of doing chemotherapy or not, um, I think that there are some very good pros for using chemo for lymphoma, um, just because of the high remission rates. And I think that, you know, choosing to not do chemotherapy, you know, there's nothing wrong with that either. But people do think that animals experience kind of similar signs that people do when going through chemotherapy. And I think that they do, but I have seen several dogs um, under chemotherapy treatment and they they handle it much different than humans do. And, and you honestly wouldn't really even know that anything is, is going on with them and they don't lose their hair. Everyone thinks that. Um, they don't lose their hair like, like humans do either. So I think that, you know, doing some research or maybe talking to people who have had animals that have undergone chemotherapy uh, treatment 
is is better for for people who don't really know than than maybe just doing research online because I think it's helpful to talk to people who have gone through that too. You're hearing Dr. Jackie Walker from Churchville Veterinary Hospital in studio with us for Unleash the Pet Show. And here's a hypothetical situation. Uh, You walk into your living room to find that your golden retriever puppy somehow got past the gate in front of the Christmas tree and is munching on pine needles, glass ornaments, hooks, and tinsel. Okay, maybe that's not hypothetical. Maybe that actually happened to our producer, her dog. But what if it happened to you and your primary care vet is closed? Or what if your dog or cat cut its pads on ice or worse, maybe got hit by a car? Pet owners who find themselves in these emergency situations do have a resource to turn to, the veterinary specialist and emergency services practice in Henrietta. And Unleash producer Megan Mack visited this 24-hour hospital to help you learn what to do and what to expect if you bring your pet in during an emergency. If he's super light, you don't really have time just to turn the gas up. You would need to just give propofol. At first listen, these may seem like the sounds of a busy hospital. Until you hear this. It is a hospital, just not for humans. This is the veterinary specialists and emergency services practice in Henrietta, where the staff works 24-7 to care for animals that come in with anything from ear infections to traumatic injuries. It's the kind of place you don't want to have to visit, But for pet owners whose dogs or cats need immediate care after their primary vet is closed, it not only provides peace of mind, but often life-saving treatment. It is a shock on so many levels when a real emergency comes in for everybody. Dr. Johnny Lamb is a veterinarian at the hospital. She says when many pet owners come in with animals in distress. Trauma, toxicities, seizure dogs, felines that can't urinate, bloats, broken legs. They don't know what to expect. If we see that there's some major trauma, the animal care system will come up, ask some brief questions, but basically take the animal in the back to start any kind of immediate treatments that are involved, assuming that the owner gives us permission to do so. In the treatment area, teams of surgeons, ophthalmologists, and veterinary technicians provide round-the-clock care. There are labs, surgery suites, a chemotherapy room, x-ray and MRI machines, and isolation rooms for animals with bacterial infectious diseases. The practice also serves as a referral hospital, providing post-operative and specialty care. This is my patient buddy, Okay. and he had a splenectomy done, so we took his spleen out because he had a mass. If our specialists are booked, a lot of times family veterinarians will call us and because they know that we have close relationships with the internists. Um, we also have the diagnostic capability in this hospital, so sometimes they'll just send them to us for continued care and diagnostics. Monitoring him, making sure that things go well. And because it's open on the weekends and at night when primary care vets are closed, the hospital also treats non-emergent conditions. Probably the most common, least emergent thing we ever see are ear infections. Sometimes the dogs just start going crazy and, and the people just want to help them and give them some relief and that's fine. I mean, we are here for that as well. So how do you know if something truly is an emergency? Dr. Lamb says if your pet ingests certain human medications, you should definitely bring them in. Some of the ones that you might think might be most benign, in particular aspirin, ibuprofen, and Tylenol can all cause major issues in animals, especially cats. But in other cases, if you aren't sure, Dr. Lamb says just give the hospital a call. Sometimes the staff can assess conditions over the phone. There are some things that you can do at home and we'll tell them like, oh, my dog ate one of those one pound Hershey chocolate bars and he's 10 pounds and we would say, yeah, you should bring him in because they're likely gonna get chocolate toxicity. But if it were a great day and that ate it, maybe you could just have coach you on how to make vomit and things to watch for at home and know when to bring them in. Those chocolate questions are common. 
She had gotten a box of Godiva chocolate, and she ended up eating it all. And when I walked in the door, she was bouncing off the walls, going crazy. Lauren Allen has a 10-year-old beagle mix named Roxy. The scene she just described happened three years ago, but Allen still remembers that she instantly knew something was wrong. I ended up finding the wrappers and called the emergency vet people because it was like 8 o'clock at night. They were very nice on the phone. They gave me some options on the phone, and they said, from her actions, I probably should bring her in. Dr. Lamb says wait times at the hospital can be between a few minutes and a couple hours, depending on the number of patients and emergency cases which get first priority. Allen says she and her husband only had to wait a few minutes before Roxy was able to get into an exam room. Roxy gets scared easily, and the hospital team took their time with the exam. They slowly approached her. They were nice in that sense of trying to get to know her and just kind of see how she normally acts, even though she was hyped up on sugar. Lauren Allen and her husband met with a vet tech and then spoke with the veterinarian as he examined Roxy. Then the vet took Roxy back for treatment, where she received fluids and medication to make her vomit. Roxy also had several other procedures, which Allen says were precautionary. She says if she weren't worried about Roxy's immediate care, she may not have consented to them. And looking back, she says she would have liked the staff to better explain the reasons behind some of the treatments. I feel like we were told and persuaded to do the procedures and stuff that they did. So they did explain some of it and some of the other stuff. It was just like, this is the best she needs to have it done. So we did it. We probably would not have done as much. We probably would have waited a little bit longer because this was, she could have eaten it at 9 a.m. and this is 8 o'clock. So if it was going to hurt her, it would have happened by now. And I wish they would have explained that better. Alan says the visit was between 45 minutes and an hour. And the final bill? About $350. About a third of the fee was the charge for the exam alone. We checked and the cost today is $110. Ellen says she's found a new primary care vet that has late hours because the fee has made her hesitant to bring Roxy back in. For future visits, it's made me stand off and really think about if my dog is that sick, but I also will do anything for my dog. Dr. Lamb says she knows pet owners can get frustrated with the fee, but since it's an emergency care facility, the operation costs are substantial. We are going to be pricier than the family vet, and a lot of that has to do with what we provide. And that biggest thing we provide is 24-hour care. I mean, we're open 24-7, 365, fully staffed with front desk all the way down to janitors. And that's a, I mean, that's a major undertaking, huge overhead. So unfortunately, you know, costs have to cover those expenses. Lauren Allen says she understands the operating costs and says the service provides a valuable safety net. She also says she'll take Roxy back to the hospital in a true emergency. And she doesn't regret bringing her there after she ate the chocolate. I definitely felt that if something did happen overnight, I could take her back, and they would have been very helpful, obviously, and you could most likely save the dog. It's more the ease of mind that makes it worth it. Megan Mack, WXXI News. And we followed up with Dr. Lamb regarding Lauren Allen's comment about the precautionary procedures Roxy had done. And Dr. Lamb sent us a very thorough response. I want to read part of it now. Quote, chocolate is a common toxicity that we see, and symptoms can range from very mild signs to more severe. Not all animals and pets react the same to every toxicity. Hence, there are ranges. When it comes to toxins and pets, we strive to offer what is going to be considered a gold standard treatment, which means we will offer what is deemed best by current literature, studies, 
expertise and clinician experience. We find it's never wrong to be overly cautious with treatment and monitoring. However, it can get more costly. We also strive to keep the pet owner involved in the case and allow them to assist with making treatment decisions. Everyone's end goal is the same, the safety of the pet. End quote. So our thanks to Megan Mack for, for that piece. And, uh, you know, Dr. Walker, who's in studio with me, everyone, I think, uh, has, has sort of a different threshold for what, number one, you feel like you can afford. We talked earlier this hour, we had a phone call from a woman named Dee. It can be hard to make decisions when, when it is a tough expense. And it's also tough because you look at your animals like family. And I'm sure you hear that, you know, from people all the time, don't you? All the time. Yeah. And I think it's hard because in in a moment of panic, people will agree to anything because they want to save their animal. And then when the bill comes later, I think sometimes there's a disconnect between the emotional part of it and then yeah. and then actually having to pay the bill. But you didn't hear anything in the piece, though, that would lend you to believe that there's anything untoward. I mean, right? I mean, we're not, I, I guess what I'm asking is when that bill comes later, you're right. That moment has passed and you go, wow, that was expensive. But I don't hear anybody taking advantage of that in this piece. No. And, and I think that sometimes clients think that we are trying to take advantage of them. But really what Dr. Lamb said is very true is that we're just trying to do the best by the pet because, I mean, we care about them too. And like she said, it's, it's never wrong to be overly cautious. And, and I, I mean, I agree with that. All right, let me get back to your phone calls for Dr. Walker. Mary in Greece is next up. Go ahead, Mary. Hello. Um, I have a 10-month-old golden retriever, and every time someone comes in the house, myself, my husband, anybody, she pees when you go to touch her. Will she outgrow this, or can I do anything to help alleviate it? Yes, yeah, so she is known as a submissive peer, <laughs> and so oh, she gets she gets very excited when people come in, and sometimes they can grow out of that. But something that you can do to help is is kind of ignoring her at first when you walk in the in, when you walk in the room, walk in the door, ignore her, and if you don't make eye contact with her, sometimes you know she won't pee. So okay. just kind of go about go about your business and pretend she's not there for a few minutes, and a lot of times that will help too. But really, just just time a lot of times is what it takes. Okay. To, okay. to have oh, I will stuff. definitely try that. Thank you very much. <laughs> but yeah, ignoring <laughs> ignoring them for a little bit until they get used to you being there is usually pretty helpful. Ten months old, Mary. <laughs> Ten months old. Yes. And and it, has it slowed down at all? No. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> this is this is this is just a very excited dog. Yeah, he really yeah. likes people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they won't totally go away. Sometimes they'll do it for certain dogs or certain people for the rest of their lives. So you'll oh, just I, I know you'll just kind of have to sort out, you know, what what's going to happen for her. <laughs> what, what what else have you tried, Mary? Um. Well, we bring her right outside when we get in the house. That's and a good idea fine, too. she'll she will pee, but you bring her back in, and she'll do it some more because you're paying attention to her, you're petting mm-hmm. her. So, I she just does it. <laughs> have you have you tried using a really stern voice with her? You know, really having uh, a yeah no no like, I haven't tried that. <laughs> I don't think she's going to listen. You know why? Because you probably have a very nice dog, and she probably has no idea she's even doing it. So Probably. It's just uh, a little frustrating, but I will definitely try what the doctor suggested, and I'll even try getting sterner with her. <laughs> Some, I was going to say, sometimes a stern voice actually can make it worse. Oh, so. well, see, see, that's why we have a veterinarian here. Maybe just have like a rational talk with her, you know, like lay out the pros and cons. Good luck to you, Mary. Thank you for the phone call. Thank you. And well, she's she's not the only one, by the way. I've heard that, Doctor Walker. You called it. There's a term. You called it a s- submissive. Yeah, she's a submissive peer. It's a, <laughs> a submissive peer. 
That yeah. is not a term I'd ever heard. Yeah, well, my my own dog actually does that for only for only certain dogs though. So and she's ten months old too. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm hoping she'll get over that too. Good luck, Mary. <laughs> uh, Benjamin on Twitter says I've got an eight year old Chihuahua that screams when it's this cold on a short walk or a short drag. He says, what to do? He won't wear boots. Yeah, so a lot of times they can get used to just if you take them outside, hopefully they will pee right away. And if they don't, bring them back in the house. So if he doesn't want to go for a walk, um, you know, they have to learn that they're going to be let outside for 30 seconds or a minute, and that's all they have. And when that time is up, bring them back in. And you can do that very often until they figure out that that's the amount of time that they have to go to the bathroom. And if, you know, he or she pees in the house in between, you can always put them in a crate. But getting them used to, as soon as I go outside, I have to go to the bathroom or or I won't be able to go, um, I think that's very helpful because a lot of dogs do not wear boots. So I understand the struggle with okay. that. <laughs> and Mary Beth just has a question on Twitter about uh, cardiac specialization. She's mentioning that um, sh- essentially pet owners have to go to Cornell right now for cardiac. Is that right? Yes. There used to be a cardiologist at, at the specialty hospital in Rochester, but I don't think they've had one for a few years now. I, I do believe there's also a cardiologist at Orchard Park in Buffalo. Uh, so That's a long way to yeah, go. Yeah, it's I, still I, a I'm a little way. surprised that Rochester doesn't have that. Do you suspect that'll change at any point? I hope so. They did before, and I think the reason that they, they don't anymore is because maybe their caseload dropped, um, mm. but... But I, I do hope that that does change in the future because, yeah, Cornell is two hours away and Buffalo is, you know, at least an hour. So Yeah, it's tough. Uh, well, Mary Beth, uh, you know, maybe that will change, especially with uh, you'd think with the market like Rochester, there'd be demand. But uh, we shall see. This is Unleash the Pet Show on Connections. And if you've got a question about your pet's health or behavior or submissive peeing or whatever it is, <laughs> you can call 844-295-TALK. That's toll free, 844 295 8255. We're going to take one more short break, and when we come back, Dr. Jackie Walker from Churchville Veterinary Hospital will answer more of your questions, and we will delve into a debate in the pet world. Are pets good gifts to give? I I thought the answer to this was obvious, and I was a a bit surprised with what we're about to hear, so that's next on Unleashed. Welcome back to Connections and Unleashed, the pet show on Connections. I'm Evan Dawson, and uh, before we Get to our that next question on pets as gifts. One more question to, uh, on uh, on animals in the snow. We're hearing a lot of questions from listeners about uh, you know sort of keeping animals, especially their paws, in the snow and in the cold. And Deb just writes and says, "My golden retriever uh, loves the snow. It's nearly impossible from keeping her from enjoying it. I worry about her paws. The snow gets stuck in them, and I'm afraid she's going to get frostbite. Is there anything I can do so she can play outside without fear of frostbite or frozen paws?" Uh, and she says, and by the way, our previous golden did eat a glass ornament. We were told to feed him bread every hour until it passed. He thought he was just being a good dog. Mm. That's an interesting treatment. Eat bread until it passes? Sometimes it helps absorb anything that's sharp and helps pass it through quicker. So Got it. Okay. All right. So it's, an, it's, it's one of the toolkit of ideas for the, when there's no good options there, when you've got glass shards or th- potential sharp things, right? Yeah, besides waiting it out, feeding them bread is something that you can do. Now, she's worried about frostbite and Mm -hmm. snow stuck in paws, and what can she do to sort of let this dog who loves to be in the snow kind of stay outside longer without fear of what happens there? What would you say? Sure. The boots, I do think, are a good option, but as we were just talking about, not all dogs like to wear them. So 
I would say, shorter amount of time outside uh, more frequently because I would be worrying about a dog staying out longer than 20 or 30 minutes when it's, you know, eight degrees outside. So you don't have to eliminate the playing outside altogether, but just, you know, spending shorter amounts of time more frequently, you know, in the morning or at night outside because it is cold and, and the frostbite is is definitely something that can happen when it's this cold. So You raised single digits. I mean, teens though, 20s concern as well? Yeah, I, I would say for a smaller dog, you know, like a Chihuahua, okay. Terriers, they can get colder much quicker. And you usually larger dogs like Golden Retrievers, et cetera, they can stay outside for a little bit longer. But, but yeah, 20s and 30s are still a concern too. So, you know, when it's wet outside, that's cold just the same. All right, we'll try to squeeze in a few more of your questions before the end of the hour, but want to, to tell you this. Holiday time does mean a lot of gift giving, obviously, but you know, it's like that movie scene with the meowing present. Is this a good idea to give someone? Well, obviously it's not a good idea if you're going to give an animal as a gift to put it in a box and wrap it. We know that. That's not good. But animals as a gift in general, is that a bad idea? WXXI's Beth Adams spoke to Aaron Sandal, who is the shelter manager at Lollipop Farm. Thank you for coming in, Erin. Good to see you. You too. I know a lot of animal welfare organizations do have policies about not giving pets as gifts, and I know the thinking about that might have changed over the years. So what does Lollipop Farm say officially about giving animals as gifts for Christmas or any time? So yes, we, um, you know, like many shelters, used to uh, really try to stay away from giving pets as gifts. Uh, but there has been some research uh, done uh, in recent years, specifically by the ASPCA, that shows that animals given as gifts uh, are not really at a risk of being surrendered to a shelter any more than a pet. Um, you know, purchased from a store or adopted themselves. Um, so we will allow pets to be given as gifts, but we do uh, have some stipulations and some uh, things we like to do to make sure the pet is going to be cared for. Uh, we ask that the person giving the pet as a gift uh, be close to the recipient. They should know the recipient. Uh, they should also know that the person uh, is interested in having a pet. So we will not generally adopt a pet as a surprise gift unless it's a family member uh, that they are living with. Uh, we do ask that the recipient be aware that the pet is going to be uh, coming into their home. We generally like to say it's a good idea to kind of know what kind of pet they're interested in, uh, you know, know their lifestyle so that we can really try to make uh, a good match between what animal um, we have and what animal they would like to have. So there are a lot of different situations where a pet could be a gift. Of course, I, I would think a really common one is parents coming in wanting to give their uh, children, a puppy or a nice kitten or a turtle or something. Mm -hmm. And then you maybe have a friend and another friend or someone trying to give a an adult, uh, like a parent uh, who may be living alone and wants some company, uh, a pet. Isn't it important, though, that Lollipop know about the kind of home that pet will be going into? And what if the person who's coming in, uh, the gift giver, doesn't really have all those answers? Yeah, it's definitely a good idea to know, um, you know, what the recipient wants, what kind of lifestyle they have. Uh, if you have somebody who is, um, you know, a very calm person, uh, does not lead a very active lifestyle, giving them a Border Collie mixed puppy, for instance, is not going to be a good idea uh, because that is going to be a very active, high-energy dog. Um, whereas if you have somebody who is, um, you know, 
out of the house a lot, working a lot. Um, a dog in general may not be better. Um, a cat might be better. So it's very important uh, for us to know what kind of lifestyle the recipient is uh, going to have. Uh, Lollipop Farm does have gift certificates, uh, which we actually will write out for the amount of an adoption fee. Um, and it's always better if the person isn't really sure what the lifestyle um, of the recipient is. Uh, it's always better to consider a gift certificate, and then that person can actually come in and choose the pet that's best for them. Aside from not discouraging pets as gifts, as Lollipop once did, you've changed the policy on that, are you mm -hmm. actively encouraging people giving pets as gifts? Well, I think the gift certificates are a big one. Um, and I think, uh, you know, doing things like at this time of year, uh, we actually have a holiday adoption promotion going on right now um, called Home for the Holidays. It's actually starting this Friday, um, where all of our adoption fees for every animal in the shelter is going to be 50% off. Um, and we encourage people to come in. Uh, we encourage people to, uh, you know, look at the animals, take an animal home if that's what they're interested in, um, or we do let people know that we do have these gift certificates available um, and that they do make great gifts. What do you think about bringing an uh, animal into a home in a busy holiday environment? Does it make sense sometimes to say, yes, you're going to get the gift, here's the picture of the of the animal you're going to get, but we're going to adopt the animal, actually bring the animal home after the holidays? Um, I mean, I don't know if we have an official policy, but it certainly is uh, a better idea to bring a pet in at a calmer time. Um, you know, Christmas time tends to be lots of family visiting, um, you know, scary decorations, uh, lots of food, um, and definitely it can be a very chaotic time. And sometimes, yes, it's not the best time to bring a pet into the home. So that actually is always uh, can be a good idea uh, wrapping up a, you know, collar and leash or a bowl. Um, and then when things have calmed down after the actual holiday, bringing the animal in at that time, uh, there's a little bit of uh, a calmer presence um, and the animal can adjust a little bit more quickly. At the start of our conversation, you mentioned that the statistics show that animals who are given as pets are not relinquished any more frequently than animals adopted for any other reason. Do you think it's because people have changed their attitudes about that and their behaviors around that? Or do you think that previously uh, perhaps those statistics just weren't properly understood? I think the statistics probably weren't properly understood. Um, and I think once the research was done and showed that, you know, people who receive a pet as a gift uh, are really not any more likely to relinquish the pet, um, I think a lot of shelters really started relaxing their attitudes. Um, obviously, if the goal of animal shelters is to get animals adopted, uh, we need to look into different ways to do that. And one of the ways is allowing pets to be given as gifts. Uh, we want animals in homes, and that certainly uh, can be a really good way to do it. Do you have very many pets at Lollipop's various shelters right now? We do. Uh, I don't have a number for you, but we do have uh, a lot of dogs, a lot of cats, uh, small animals, rabbits, guinea pigs, all different kinds of animals, um, and they're all definitely looking for homes. The adoption process in general, am I correct in assuming that it's a little more involved than it used to be to begin with? I don't actually believe so. I believe that uh, we are really looking at trying to uh, increase our adoptions, which means working with people and looking for ways to make a pet adoption work rather than trying to have hard and fast rules where we say no. Uh, our counselors uh, work with people to really look at what is the best pet for their family. Um, you know, we don't really have a lot of rules such as we have to call your landlord on every single animal we adopt out. Um, you know, we really look at, you know, making a relationship with people and working with them to try to, again, find a way to make that adoption work. 
we do still, you know, we'll never put an animal in jeopardy. We'll never compromise the safety of an animal. Um, but we really want to try to find ways to get our pets into homes. And you're still keeping track of those surrender uh, situations and why and when the animal is being surrendered so that if this ever changes, you're likely to know pretty soon. Oh, correct. Right? And uh, we obviously understand that sometimes uh, situations happen, circumstances come up. Um, we always will ask people, uh, you know, hey, there's been an animal surrender. We want to know about that. Um, you know, but we understand that sometimes there just are extenuating circumstances. Um, sometimes there's just really no other option. Um, and we don't hold it against people, but we do ask about it. Well, happy holidays to you, and thank you so much for taking the time. Yes, thank you to you, too. That's Aaron Sandal, shelter manager at Lollipop Farm, talking to WXXI's Beth Adams. And if you're looking to adopt a pet, we'd like to tell you about a no-fee pet adoption event at Rochester Animal Services tomorrow. It's from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. at 184 Verona Street. Adoption fees will be waived for all cats and dogs adopted between those hours, 11 and 4. Just bring a collar and a leash or a pet carrier to ensure that pets are transported safely to their new homes on their scheduled release date. Dr. Walker, briefly, I would just say I'm very curious to see continuing research on surrender rates for pets as gifts. I mean, if the, if the I'm, a, I'm an evidence guy, and if the research is that we don't see a higher surrender rate, that, that might be a great thing. But I can recall uh, having a family member who was elderly and living alone, and we thought, boy, a, a, an adult dog would be exactly what you need. You've loved dogs your whole life. She didn't want one. She made it clear. We thought we're just going to get, but you know, ultimately you have to be very careful, I think, in that spot, because if the person really doesn't want to care for it, it's not good for the pet or for the person, right? I agree. I think that parents who get pets for Christmas for their children, that's different because they are the ones that are ultimately going to be financially responsible for those pets, not the children. And I think giving a pet to another adult who will have to be financially responsible for that animal. I think that's different. So I I don't think it's a good idea to give pets as gifts to another, like, adult, um, because I think that if they're the ones that want that animal, they're bringing in a responsibility into their lives, especially financially. And and like I said, parents giving it as a gift to their children, whatever stipulations they make um, that the children gets the animal. Different story. Different story. I think that, you know, the the parents are going to be the owners, really, of that animal, and, and I think that that's okay in that situation. So. All right, let's squeeze a little bit more from listeners in. Bonnie and Leroy, next up. Go ahead, Bonnie. Uh, yes, I, I pay attention to a lot of things about birds, Cornell ornithology, the Audubon, etc., and they have always stated that birds fly into windows because they see the reflection of the sky. They think they're flying into the sky. So that's why we put sticker-type things on windows, large windows that can reflect the sky. And I recently had a diamond-cut uh, grid work put in a new window, and I've never had a bird fly into this. Wow. <laughs> fly into it occasionally. Bonnie, that is fascinating. Thank you for the phone call. That's certainly new to me. And if you're someone who has birds routinely flying into your windows, maybe you'd want to think about something. That, that would make sense that uh, that reflection happens there. Uh, so thank you, Bonnie. I'd never thought about that. Let me grab Mary in Rochester, and we have to keep this tight. Go ahead, Mary. Hi, good afternoon. Hey, I was wondering if, if any of your people there have heard the, um, it's an attack ad actually running on commercial radio against the ASPCA by the Center for Consumer Freedom. And they're, they're sort of saying don't give to the ASPCA. And they are actually a company that is 
uh, donated heavily by the fast food industry and Philip Morris and, and you know, basically beer companies. Oh. Uh, yeah, it was really a strange ad to hear. It was just like a, an attack ad on, on commercial radio. Uh, thank you, Mary. I, I haven't heard it. Have you heard it? No, I haven't. What, what exactly is commercial radio? I'm not... I kid. Uh, I know it's a real thing. Lots of ads. But uh, I have not heard that ad. Uh, so I, it's hard for me to comment, Mary. Go ahead. The only thing I was going to say is that I do think that when you give to the ASPCA, it's harder for that money to trickle down to help animals. Whereas if you give to your local shelters, you know, you know, you can donate blankets, you can donate food, you can donate your money. But like if you donate to Verona Street, you know where that money is going and that it's going to be put to good use. All right. Uh, in our last 45 seconds, let's be real quick here. Drinking water from the Christmas tree. Okay? Not okay? Like you got a dog, sometimes cats? <laughs> yes. I think that if there are no chemicals added to the water, sometimes you can add those chemicals yeah. to make the Christmas tree last longer. I, I, you should discourage it just because it's going to be a problem for you behaviorally. Yeah. But as long as there's nothing added to the water, it shouldn't be a problem for okay. them to drink the water. I hear poinsettia is a real toxic. Is that true? The, the the white sap part that's in the center of the poinsettia can be can be toxic to dogs and cats. They have to eat a lot of it, and it causes mild GI upset. So it, it's not really as toxic as people think, but I still would not let them eat the poinsettia plant. Okay, and uh, what about mistletoe pine needles? Do you ever see problems with that? Pine needles, not so much. Mistletoe, um, you know, because of the sharp edges, okay. it can also cause some GI upset. So It's like eating a same. bay leaf. Yeah, like not a not a good idea. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Leave it for its initial original purpose. Uh, Dr. Walker, thank you so much. And if people want to get in touch with Churchville Veterinary Hospital, where are you? How do they find you? We are right off 490, and you can look on our Facebook page and also our website. You can just Google Churchville Veterinary Hospital. And we're obviously in Churchville, New York, and I have really enjoyed my time here. Thank well, you thank much. you. Happy holidays to you and all thank the staff there. Thanks for being here. A short break, much more connections is straight ahead.